Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Real Life Oscar Challenge. As always, I'm your host, Mike Levito. It's me, Lars Emerson. And over Skype, we have... Kathleen Levito. And we're here to talk about some more movies that were nominated for Best Picture while we were alive. In case you forgot, that's the conceit of the podcast. It's, it's been a minute. It has. It's been a little bit, but we're back in the saddle. We're back in action. We're back in black, except Lars and I are wearing blue. I'm sure that guy in the motorcycle is wearing black, though. What are you wearing, Kat? It's a weird I'm question. Like, what what color are you wearing, Kat? <laughs> I am wearing gray. Okay. Blues and grays. Uh, sounds like a great color palette to me. Anyway, let's get started, because the year was 2011. It was the year of the U.S. debt ceiling crisis. It was the year of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And it was the year that Anthony Weiner had to resign because he was sending nude pictures of himself to people. But most importantly, it was the year that I turned 17, Lars turned 16, and Kathleen turned 15. And it was the year that nine, count them, nine movies were nominated for Best Picture. And those movies were The Artist, The Descendants, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Help, Hugo, In Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. I did those last four by memory. I forgot to pull them up. Isn't that so impressive? I'm proud of you, Mike. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to talk about them right now. So uh, let's let's get things started with The Artist, directed by Michelle Hazanavicius, written by Michelle Hazanavicius, starring Jean Dujardin, Berenice Bejo, James Cromwell, Penelope Ann Miller, Malcolm McDowell, Missy Pyle, Beth Grant, Ed Lauder, Joel Murray, Ken Davician, and John Goodman. Uh, the Artist is the story of George Valentine, who is a silent era film star. He's kind of on top of the world. Um, but he is a film star in the late 1920s when talkies become to become a thing. And uh, he's convinced that talkies are a fad and that he's going to create one giant movie that's going to prove all the haters wrong about silent film. Uh, and while this is happening, his life is intersecting with Pepe Miller, played by uh, Berenice Bejo, who is a star who is thriving in the talkie film market. Uh, and this movie, of course, is a functionally silent film there is no dialogue really um and is presented like a silent film it's all black and white that's a big part of the conceit uh and it's about sort of george's fall her rise and how they how their lives intersect um i had seen this movie before uh kathleen i don't believe you have what what are your thoughts on this one honestly <laughs> if you want a movie that's about this but is good <laughs> I'm not saying that it's bad, but I'm saying that if you want a movie about this that's, like, wholly enjoyable, I would recommend watching Singing in the Rain. Um, this pretty much just felt like they lifted the story of Singing in the Rain, um, which is about a director who directs silent movies, and then they move to speaking, and they have to figure out how to incorporate music and speaking into their films and such like that. Um, and that's just a little less, like... Like, like, um, like sugary, I guess. Like, I feel like a huge part of this movie is just like the look at us, guys, we're using silent film and black and white, which is like, I don't, I feel like it, I didn't like, I don't think it was the best vehicle to like get across 
um, like, I don't know, the, the, the power of, like, that medium, because it really is just about how it, like, sucks and nobody cares about it anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems, like, weird and mixed to me. Lars, I feel like you really like this movie. What are your thoughts? I did, Michael. Thanks for asking. I feel like a <laughs> sportscaster with our headphones in. Um, so I, I will... I really like, much like the Oscars, I really like movies about movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is obviously that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just, I think if, if, if you view this movie more as like an homage and like an experimentation on the homage, that's kind of why I like it. Is it's, um, is it does a lot of very new things by like making a reference to something that's obviously like a hundred years old. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's like it's sweet. It's like it's about people who are emoting. You have to like feel. You have to like watch the actors emote physically. I think that's something that people don't really do a lot in new movies. I think it's like it's novel in a really good way for modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my that's my like top line. Why I would give this movie four four and a half stars. Interesting. So I think I kind of fall in the middle between the two of you. Um, I think that. Uh, it is remarkable when I think about how similar the plot is to Singing in the Rain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotta dance! <laughs> Minus that part. <laughs> Minus the singing part, because they can't talk. Um, I, what I do, yeah, I do think you're right, Lars, where it's, I think part of, like, the reason why this movie exists is that Michelle Hazanovich is going to be like, hey, I like silent films, and I want to show why they matter. And I think he does a good job, like you said, with uh, the acting, where it has to be very expressive, and he does a good job, I think, also um, with like just like different cinematic elements and like angles and and even the way like he uses black and white is really interesting. Like there's that one scene where George and Peppy meet on on the staircase on the staircase. Yeah. And if you notice, um, you, know, you would think that color wouldn't play a, a big part in black and white film, but George is wearing like a, this sort of drab gray suit that you can tell is gray even in black and white. And the two guys that Peppy's with are in these like very sharp white suits, and it creates this very um, interesting contrast and there's like a lot of like interesting filmmaking things like that like uh, there's one really good shot that shows like George very depressed and you see his like reflection in like the desk he's like sort of over um, and it also does, I also do think it does do a thing where it shows why people wanted talkies because there's that one scene when Jagaman is telling George why talkies are a big thing and like you notice that there's more dialogue there and it keeps getting interrupted by the title cards so you're like it would be so much easier if Jagaman could just say what's happening and I do also think you do notice pretty quickly, like, how it's weird, how you don't even hear a sound when, like, someone puts a glass down or someone closes a door. And I think the way that he then introduces sound with that sort of, like, Lynchian scene almost, where um, George Valentine has this nightmare that he uh, can't speak, but everything else around him is making sound. And it's, like, it's, it's kind of creepy almost. And, like, when there's, like, the women walking by, they're laughing. It's almost mocking. You hear, like, the explosion when the, when the flower, the, the feather falls. Yeah. It's really well done, this part. I also think this movie is, like, 40 minutes of ideas. And um, I was reading about this. And apparently, Michelle has one of issues. was, like, I was thinking about whether or not, like, you know, I should make this more of a comedy or more of a melodrama. And I decided that silent melodramas are better. And I think I disagree with him. Because I think the last half of this movie is very, not boring. It just feels like the same thing over and over again. I feel like it, it takes so much time for Don Gergedine's character to, um, like, his fall just takes too long, and he's just, he's like too prideful, 
and just the way he tries to depict him being very prideful and like not wanting to do a talkie and not knowing how to like find a way to his life it just very much like dragged for me towards the end because it stopped being fun and i was just like this this is just melodramatic and this is really not doing anything for me and it just felt like all they had to say was silent movies are fun but they didn't really have anything else to add in that extra like half hour or so you can only you can only be so dark in a black and white movie i kind of feel or less it has to be pretty short it's like and i think that's where the acting comes in is you have to rely on the actors when it gets really dark Mm. um which yeah like you said the last half of this movie I mean, he tries to commit suicide, right? Yeah. Um, it's not. It's not like a cheery no, movie, no. Um, and it's difficult to like to kind of do all that without sound. Mm. Uh, I think they do it pretty well, just because I think the acting is good. But yeah, I think that's a fair point. Yeah, it's just yeah. I don't know. Like I said, it only feels like there's so many ideas, and um, it, it just. And I guess that's my thing is I feel like it really doesn't say much. It, it, it's very self-reflexive. It's very much about the medium. I don't know, you know that says a whole lot beyond that. But isn't that okay? Isn't the fact that this is so novel? I mean, I mean, isn't that kind of the, isn't that the point? Is is it's reintroducing audiences to this concept that now seems so foreign, even though it wasn't actually that long ago? I, I think there's something like very nice there, like when directors now go back and they use old filmmaking styles. It's like, oh, they're so visionary. It's like, no, we've just been leaning on 100 years of people who did this before us, and here's why, and here's why this was important. I think that's what this is about. I guess so. I, I guess to me, it just feels like... I, I guess I feel like there needs to be like more to that. Yeah. It has to be more yeah. about just that, and I feel yeah. like it's not. Um, it becomes almost too personal. Yeah. 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 Anything else to add about the arts, Kathleen? No. I don't dislike it, but I would not... like. It was like one of those things where I remember when it was in theaters... And I remember being like, I don't want to see that because I don't think it's for me. And like mm-hmm. that was confirmed. And that's yeah. going to be a running theme throughout this <laughs> this episode of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Do we want to talk about how it does at the Oscars yet, or should we wait? I mean, I, I can. Do you have something to say about that? I, I was just going to say it. It's like the most groan-worthy win, Academy right. Award winner. Yeah, it's like the it. It's almost so predictable that you wouldn't predict it. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like that's kind of the thing, is that, like... And I feel like in order to, like, win Best Picture, you should be about something more than just movies. And I just feel like... It just never, like, like reached that, like, level of enjoyment or, like, emotion for me. The novelty is all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. It's kind of a gimmick. Anyway, it was nominated for editing. It won for costume design. Nominated for cinematography. Nominated for art direction. Original screenplay. Berenice Bejo is nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Jean Dujardin won Best Supporting a- Best Actor. Um, Michelle Hazanavicius won Best Director, and it won Best Picture. Uh, let's move on now to The Descendants, which is directed by Alexander Payne, uh, written by Alexander Payne, Nat Fax, and Jim Rash. Fun fact, Jim Rax, Jim Rash, rather, the dean from Community. Um, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Cowie Hart Hemmings. Um, stars George Clooney, Shailene Woodley, Bo Bridges, and Judy Greer. This ends a story about George Clooney's character named Matt King. He's this big shot lawyer in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and he, his wife has, was involved in a jet ski accident and is currently in a coma. And he finds out through his daughter that his wife had in fact been cheating on him with this realtor in the Honolulu area. And he kind of goes on this quest to, like, find this guy 
and just kind of like force a resolution while also it turns out he is the descendant of some like settler of Hawaii and a Hawaiian princess so he's in control of um, this like undeveloped land on Hawaii his family is and he's in charge of the sale of it and he's also trying to figure out how he wants to sell it um, so I'll start with this one this is my first time seeing this I like Alexander Payne movies I like Alexander Payne I like George Clooney and I, I liked, I guess I liked the beginning of this. I liked uh, how it started out. It's, like, pretty funny. It, it's, like, Alexander Payne does, like, middle-aged men very well. And, like, especially, like, I feel like George Clooney, like, the defining image for me in this movie is, like, George Clooney, like, running down the street in his little loafers. Just, they're just, like, slapping against the pavement. And he just, it just seems so, like, flabby and, like, useless almost. And I feel like he, it's Alexander Payne's making these movies about like men who have like reached a point where they feel like they're not useful anymore. Of like almost like where they're like not like incredibly rich, but they are like so comfortable that life is sort of like boring and uneventful, and they're kind of like thrust into crises. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of that he does a lot of that through like these like very like chill dudes and like being like thrust into unchill situations. Like parts I laugh the most at is like when the jet ski instructor like, walks up George Clooney to, like, apologize to him. And then he's just, like, it's not my fault. Like, like the way he has, like, this very, like, island accent and is trying to, like, to get George to, like, chill. Also, when George, like, confronts his wife's friends about him being cheated on, um, and Rob Hubel's, like, just, like, calm down, man. Like, those I thought were, like, the funniest parts. Yeah. Um, but I also do kind of, like, I feel like he gets to a point where it's just, like, why is George Clooney, like, trying to find this guy... And, like, what is... And I feel like the movie also then starts to lose focus a little bit. Where it's, like, what is it trying to accomplish? What is it trying to do? I think it's trying to be about him, like, being the steward of his life. There's this big thing of, like, actually talking and having actual conversations. Which is supposed to parallel him being the stewardship of this land and doing something meaningful with it. But it never really... I liked it, but it never quite came together that much. Um, Kathleen, you are also new to this movie. What did you think? Yeah, I would say this movie is, like, really good to watch on a plane if you have a nice long plane ride ahead of you. Um, Because it's, like, entertaining enough that you, like, are chill watching, for me at least, like, fine watching the full thing. But it's not something that I feel like you need to be, like, super present for because it does, like, start to lose focus itself. So it's, like, okay if you do too. Um, And then, I don't know, I think it was really pretty, but, you know... They filmed it on Hawaii, so, like, when you... They didn't try that hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did, like... It, like, had the beginning of something that I would find interesting to Mm -hmm. watch. Like, family drama and that kind of thing. But it did just, like, hit a point where you're, like, I don't really get, like... I don't get your vibe, man. Like, I don't get, like, what you're after. Or I don't know if they did, like, the best job with George Clooney's character, like, really expressing his, like, motivation. Um... And that's where I think it kind of, like, started to sputter out. Whereas you're just, like, you just see, like, it feels like he's dragging it on too long at certain points. Like, his whole expedition. Um, so I think it's just, it feels like, a, it feels very long. Like, it starts out with potential, and then it just kind of, like, drags. Yeah. And it's, like, this was the director of Sideways, which is, like, a movie we all loved. Um, but what I think separates this from Sideways, I just, I guess Sideways, it felt, it felt more focused. And it was more like, these are these guys who are, like, sort of almost, like, physically trapped together. And whereas The Descendants was, like, it felt like a guy who was 
not physically trapping. He was just like doing things that didn't. I don't. They didn't always make sense to me, and maybe that was kind of the point. Lars is furiously taking notes. Not furious. Just, he's taking just notes. Just writing down some thoughts. Okay. What are your thoughts, Lars? Um, I think we're in a theme where I'm going to like every single movie this year better than either of you guys. Did. <laughs> Uh, it's just how I think things are going to end up. Yeah, I think I just really like movies where George Clooney like narrates. Mm. So it's like this and up in the air. And they're very, I think they're very similar. I mean, um, Kathleen was talking about how like George Clooney's journey goes on like a little long. Um, I, I think he's lost. He's just a very lost, mm. hurt person. <laughs> um, I I think... I mean, obviously, Sid is like probably my favorite part of the movie, yeah. which is like Shailene Woodley's character's boyfriend. I guess yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. just like along for the ride. He's like, oh, yeah. Um, but actually, my favorite scene in this movie, I think, might be um, it's like they're at a hotel one night, and George Clooney goes into Sid's room, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like sid like wakes up and like george Clooney and him have like a very like straight up conversation just the two of them it's like these are two people who are just kind of both uh, like opposites and yet they're kind of getting along i think it's like a very accurate depiction of like family dynamics in a Mm way um where it's like you kind of view yourself as like the insular unit um and you're all very worried about like the younger child even though one of you is more mature and knows things are going on um I, I very much resonated with Shailene Woodley, even though she's an eco-terrorist in real life. <laughs> um, like, in this movie, I just, like, I totally get that. It's like, mm. she's she's also clearly in pain. Mm. Uh, she's going through something, but she has to kind of uh, muddle through it and pretend to be a little more mature, mm. um, even though she clearly is upset with her dad and mm. her mom. Yeah. Um, and I think that's... You know, it's ostensibly about, like, the rest of the family, right? It's the cousins and the land and all the money. Um, and in, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like family movies often stretch, like, family is family. It's like, oh, yeah, and the cousins and da-da-da-da-da. I think this is kind of more realistic in that it's like, yeah, I mean, the family is really just, like, the three of us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're there, but we're kind of the focus. Mm-hmm. I think it's just very realistic. Yeah. I was thinking it's really pretty. It's a really good looking movie. I love the soundtrack to this movie. See, the soundtrack bored me a little I bit. I hate it. <laughs> okay. okay. Like we got halfway through and I was like, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another part of Lars's like Elvis fascination. It's You yeah. have to get to yeah. really into Hawaiian music at some point. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. It, it's... It's good. I would never tell someone, like, not to watch it, but it wouldn't get, like, my most emphatic endorsement. It it almost feels like it was sort of like Alexander Payne trying to sort of, like, go, like, a little bigger than Sideways. Um, And I think it just, like, it it bites off maybe a little bit too much in Nikachu. And just, like, the... the, It it felt like... There were, like, two storylines to resolve, and, like, when it... Like, when with, like, the Cousins storyline, I was like, all right, this is just kind of, like... I just kind of want this to resolve. <laughs> yeah, I forgot um, about the land at one point, and then when I came back up, I was like, wait, why are we still talking about this? Like, this is too much happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to wonder how many times Alexander Payne has been divorced. The answer <laughs> is once. It was from Sandra O. Oh. Oh, really? Yeah. Of Sideways Fame. Yeah. Huh. So, definitely a divorced guy. You get that read watching right. all his oh, movies. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, especially because we watched the lecture now. Yeah, 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 definitely. 
definitely. The guy's going. He, he needs an outlet. Yeah. All right. Well, The Descendants uh, was nominated for Best Editing. It won Adapted Screenplay. The Dean won an Oscar. Hmm. Uh, George Clooney was nominated for Best Actor. I do think George, like, this was, like, the year, or, like, this was the era, rather, of, like, handsome movie stars, like, debasing them. Not even, like, he didn't, like, debase himself. But it was, like, I think there is, and I, like, read it, like, a review of another movie about this, where it's, like, audiences, and this guy pauses basically, like, <laughs> This guy posited that like people like watching, specifically men, like watching handsome male movie stars be cuckolded. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's talking about like Richard Gere's character in Unfaithful, where it's like, it, it's just interesting to me that it's like, in order to like win his Oscar, George Clooney felt like he had to like play like this kind of like sad sack dude who like hangs out in like Hawaiian shirts and like loafers all day. Yeah. It's an interesting role for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's good in it though. He is. He is. He's good in everything. Yeah. And uh, Alexander Payne's not for Best Director and is, of course, not made for Best Picture. All right, uh, let's move on to a movie called Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close. All right. <laughs> directed, by Stephen, directed by Stephen Daldry. By the way, can you name the other movie we had to watch for this podcast that was directed by Stephen Daldry? Actually, there were two of them. Can you name both of them? Lars King, because he just pulls it up. Kathleen, can you name both of them? No. <laughs> <laughs> the Reader and The Hours, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Kathleen's precious. You, Lars and Kathleen, Lars and Kathleen's precious. The leader and Kathleen's precious. The hours. So, yeah, take that. Um, actually, don't mind the hours. The hours is fine. I don't like the reader. Uh, directed by Stephen Daldry. Uh, written by Eric Roth, based on the novel of the same name by Jonathan Safran Foer, starring Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock, Thomas Horn, Max von Sydow, Viola Davis, John Goodman, and Jeffrey Wright. <sighs> okay, so extremely loud to be close. Um, it's a movie of this kid named Oscar whose father dies on 9-11. And um, he's kind of racked with guilt because his father kept trying to call the house and leaving messages on the answering machine and he never picked up. And in one time, in, in Oscar is kind of portrayed as sort of like a... As, as he's, he, they, they say he's taken an alt... Uh, a, uh, what's that called? Um, a... Asperger's test and it came up inconclusive. He's like precociously, very precocious, very intelligent kid. And his dad, Tom Hanks, he's just like, they say he is. He's set up these sort of like elaborate sort of like games and stuff. Like the big thing was the quest to find the sixth borough of New York. Um, it didn't make sense to me either. But basically, uh, he's, he's rooting around in his uh, deceased dad's closet one day. And he comes across a vanilla envelope. Um, with the key inside of it and written on the envelope is the word black. And so he assumes that someone whose name is black must have whatever this key opens. So he tries to basically visit every person named black in New York City and find out who the key belongs to. Along the way, he hooks up with this guy who is renting a house owned by his family. Um, this very old man who does not speak. He only communicates via a yes and no written on his hand and through writing on little notes. Um, and they, at one point, try and search for it together. Um... And yeah, Kathleen, you really like this movie, right? I hated it. <laughs> um, it's just annoying. the the story I, The story's annoying, and like, I feel so silly because like, I like was very afraid that that I was going to be really upset about this movie because I thought it was going to be more of a disaster movie. Mm-hmm. And then I remember I read, so I read half the plot to confirm that it would not upset me, and I was like, I'm going to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, it's just, it's, my comments to this movie are probably going to be very similar to my comments 
about Hugo, which is, like, I just don't connect with, like, whimsical stories about whimsical children going on whimsical children's adventures. I just do not. I find it very irritating. I find that, like, level of just, like, innocence and, like, I don't know, like, sugary goodness, like, very irritating. Um, and this this movie was just, like, I don't know. It was very, like, melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Just, like, the replaying of the... Um, also, the kid was cruel, making that old man yes. listen to his father's, like, yes. the voice messages. Because the kid, like, stole the voice message box thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, made... Yeah, and the answering machine made the old man listen. It's just, like... It's just very... I just did not enjoy. I Like, there was nothing I found redeeming about this movie. Uh, yeah, Lars, what, what did you think? Um... I I sort of disagree. I I do think there are redeeming parts. To paraphrase uh, a friend of the show's, um, it's not, you don't hate a bad movie. You hate a movie that's mostly got everything right and then just messes up. And I think that's what this is. Is it's a movie that like, look, the cinematography is fine. The acting is actually like fine. I, I don't have like a lot technically to say that is wrong about this movie. Other than, like, plot elements. Which are very important. Isn't that the case of, like, every bad movie we watch for this podcast, though? Like, they all look fine. Like, Crash looked fine. This movie does, like, interesting (laughs) things that I at least were like, oh, yeah, that's a cool thing that you just did. Okay. Um, Like, in the more montage-y parts. Um, You were going to say, Kathleen? I'm just, I'm thinking of that, like, theory, and I disagree. I think that, for me at least... I hate movies that are just blind to themselves, like blind to like the story they're telling, blind to how like cloying it may be or irritating it be, or like just like the, I feel like there's no like sympathy for the viewer in this movie. <laughs> no, this just... is a very painful movie. Um, it kind of reminded me of like Precious. Sort of, and just how how it like so deliberately pushed, mm-hmm. and it like wanted you to feel. And I do think there are like parts of this movie that are like genuinely very good, and how painful they are. It's like I kept I kept feeling so many emotions during this movie, and then like two minutes later, something really dumb would happen. Like oh, ugh. <laughs> I just felt like a little gross. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's, it's <laughs> there are like I guess. Um, there are like two moments in this movie that like really stand out as like groany, and so like, he discovers Max finds side out the old man mm. is like his grandfather. Yeah. So like, oh my god, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, and then like at the end, when like he's made this flip book on like his journey, and like shows nine eleven and a guy falling mm. out of it that's yeah. supposed to be his dad. Yeah. Is like really like oh my that's yeah. an odd choice. Yeah. That's a dark ass choice yeah. on how you want to yeah. end this. Yeah. Um, Sandra Bullock is really good in this movie. I will stand on that. Her scene where she's like, I like wanted to cry when she's talking about how she like followed him around the town and was like making sure he was safe and was doing all these things for him. I think there are like genuinely really good parts of this movie. That's why I gave it two and a half stars. <laughs> and oh, the sixth borough is New Jersey. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's it's, my theory. <laughs> I feel like New Jersey and Long Island have to fight for the right 
to the oh. Pacific Square. I'll yeah. give it to Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Long Island doesn't even want to be part of New York. They want to secede. That's true. And technically, Queens and Brooklyn are on Long Island, so it would have to be the other counties. And and there's, there's, there's like three other counties on Long Island, so it would have to be New Jersey by default, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, um... I hated this. This movie made me want to like rip my skin off. Like yeah. it was, it it really really bothered. And I, I I wasn't expecting to like it. Um, and but it really I I, I think I mostly agree with what you said, Kathy, about it being blind to itself. Especially because the question that kept coming up for me is like, who is this for? Who is looking to relive the trauma of nine eleven through the eyes of this very annoying kid? Um, in a story that, like, okay, so, like, there's the surface level things that annoy me where it's, like, aesthetically, I don't like it. It reminds me of the music video for Fireflies by Owl City. Like, ew. Like, (laughs) 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 I I feel like it tries to, like, force this aesthetic of, kind of of what you were talking about, Kathy, of, like, wonder, but wonder without any real, um, reason to be be wondered or bewildered or whatever, right? Um, yeah, you're right. 9-11 is no unanswered questions. It's not something that was shocking and one, in like, but, 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 it inspires it's, but see, that's the one. Yeah. But that, it's different though. Cause it didn't even really focus on the attack mm-hmm. itself. It'd be one thing if it treated 9-11 like the Titanic where it's like, look at this like incredible, just like man-made disaster. But that's not what I'm talking about. It's talking, it's trying to show this kid as wonderful and his journey as wonderful. And I just did not buy that at all. And, like, the little inventions he makes is wonderful. And just, like, this really, like, weird fetishization of, like, analog technology. Like, yeah. that's what that... It was trying to force this, like, quirkiness almost, right? Yeah. On me. That's what I didn't like. Especially because he just walked around for tampering the whole time. It was really annoying to listen to. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't get that. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I kind of liked the parts of Max von Sydow. I liked watching their relationship grow. Even though it became very obvious that he was his grandfather. Thank God, by the way. If this had been just a random old man with his kids, <laughs> I would have been very concerned. Um, and honestly, if the movie was a was was the movie, but it it sort of wrapped up with like this kid is going on this journey with his grandfather, and this kid who's trying so hard to hold on to the memory of his father, um has to reintroduce his father to his grandfather, who it said basically abandoned his father when he was a child and ran away from his father. And they were trying to reconcile those two kinds of ends. I think I would like this movie more. I would still think it's bad, but I would like it more. I'd like it if it focused on that relationship, which I think was the best part of the movie. It did not, though, because, like, eventually Max on leaves for somewhat un- undescribed reasons like you probably said probably because the kid played the <laughs> freaking but, voicemail but then but then uh max on is like i have to leave because i'm hurting you i'm pretty sure it's like basically what you're yeah doing. yeah i didn't really understand that and then there's there's more there's like almost at least half an hour more of movie where it turns out the key actually wasn't that special and it was like accidentally picked up in an estate cell where tom hanks popped his face and blah 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 it actually belonged to the first family named black who we visited, and it was uh, it belonged to this other guy's dead father. Um, so that, that, that the way that, that story is handled just annoyed me because I feel like it's very poorly plotted. Uh, what else annoys me is just like it's like what you said with like the book at the end, where like literally the last page in this book 
of this journal of like this kid's journeys are it's his drawing of the twin towers smoke made out of like black like cotton balls it looks like mm. and then this sort of flipbook thing of this guy falling from the tower and the whole thing is that like there's this picture of a man jumping out of the world trade center and he thinks it's his dad um that's a real picture like that is an actual picture taken of an unidentified man jumping from the world trade center and there have been articles written trying to find out who this man is and and just how horrifying it images and how and how the fact that we don't know who this guy is just like adds to the tragedy and like it kind of pisses me off that like they took this very real very painful image and built this very cloying and frankly meaningless movie around it. Mm-hmm. That is like it's it, it's exploitative. Right? I I agree. <laughs> I think there's a point to be made that this, like you said, the movie could have been done better. That it's like that man could have been any of our families, yeah. and this is about us as individuals, not even necessarily as a nation. It's just about us as people trying to deal with like a tragedy we cannot even comprehend. This isn't a tra- it's not this is not a tragedy you think about. It's not like Dad got in a car crash and died. It's not yeah. like dad died of alcoholism this is something that no one thought anyone could ever die from mm. and it happens it's like how do you deal with that and this could happen to anyone it just came out of the blue mm. and i think there is a good movie to be made here that this movie is 50 percent of the way towards it has major major things <laughs> it needs to do to get to that last hundred hundred p yeah i think too what's so I actually own the book. I've never read the book because I received it as a birthday present and thought, as I told you guys before we watched the movie, like, that's a pretty fucked up present to give someone. Um, so I'm kind of... And it's like, I feel like a lot of the times we do watch a lot of movies that are based on books and we just, you know, we ignore the part that's about the book and we just focus on the movie. So my question is, like, because it feels exploitative... Um, is the book the same or like, I don't know, does the book make a better point and they just chose to make a movie out of it because it's about 9-11 and they knew people would go to see it? Like, because the way that things happen in the occur in the movie, like the dad could have died from a car accident or from alcoholism or from like anything else. It didn't have to be 9-11, you know? Yeah. Um, so the book, to my knowledge, is about 9-11. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, what I did find interesting is that apparently in the book they make no reference to Asperger's. Interesting. Uh, and so it almost just seemed like, how do we explain this kid's behavior? Let's say he might have Asperger's, which is also kind of weird to me. Like, I kind of don't like that either. I don't like that. Yeah, I, I think he's just a kid. Yeah. I think there's a, he's just a precocious kid. Right. Is yeah. how I chose to read this. Right. It makes it way more sad if this kid is also like, mm-hmm. I don't know has Asperger's. Right, yeah. It's just kind of piling on at that point. Yeah, it's like, um, give this family a break. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was funny, because, like, that, like someone asked the author who wrote the book about, like, that edition. He's like, yeah, I don't know. If, if, if they think he's got Asperger's, he's got Asperger's. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I could see how you could get that read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... Uh, I feel like this was, but I feel like this this was kind of like an like 
This, like, Kathleen, I, I, so I've never read a full one of these, but Kathleen, I know you've read, like, a lot of John Green books. This mm-hmm. feels like a John Green book but without, like, the humor or the intelligence. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I would say about how the ending... So, John Green admittedly is like, I don't write plots. My movies are... Pl- or, like, my books, I guess, because he writes books, are plotless. It's just about, like, characters, like, finding themselves or characters dealing with a certain situation, and then they end. And that's kind of what this movie felt like in the sense that, like the whole key situation, that whole storyline was such like a, like a throwaway. It's just like, ah, oh, the key doesn't actually matter. And like, it's kind of like how John Green books end. <laughs> and the whole point is that like, you have fallen in love with the characters in the meantime, and you've like put stock into them and you've watched them grow and they've watched themselves grow. And like, you're proud of them at the end and whatever. So it's like a similar vibe where it's just like, characters doing quirky things and like creating their own adventures and stuff like that but just like bad (laughs) yeah what (laughs) um yeah i i would agree and i think like talking about the book too it's like it's i i do almost wonder with the book where it's like does the book like unpack him meeting the people named black because that you know it was another thing to me it's like they kind of like yada yada that a lot and they very conveniently just tent- happened to focus on the one family who actually did need the key. Yeah, and then also the fact that the mom goes around it to all the black families and says, like, all the families named black. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a bad last name to choose, okay? It is. And it's like, by the way, my son is going to come by and, like, blah, blah, blah. And they show this montage of her being, like, hugged by these people and, like, what's it? Who? What strangers? Like, if someone came to my door and was like, my son is dealing with a tragedy, he's going to come and, like, try to do this, I would be like, I appreciate what you're doing for him, but, like, I can't be part of this. Like, that is not a thing that I need in my life. It, it, is, I, it is kind of putting the burden on someone else. <laughs> I, I don't know. I really liked that part of the movie. This kid, no matter, can we all agree, this kid needs therapy for, like, oh, yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, years. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Just like I do after seeing this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that's Extremely Loud Incredibly Close. It was only nominated for two awards. One happened to be Best Picture. The other was Max von Sydow for Best Supporting Actor. That's true. I, I, that I, I, I liked his role. I liked their relationship. I liked how it was playing out. But uh, did, didn't, didn't, did, they didn't do it enough. All right. Uh, move on to a better movie, uh, The Help, directed by Tate Taylor. Uh, written by Tate Taylor, based on the novel of the same name by Catherine Stockett, starring Jessica Chastain, Viola Davis, Brace Dallas Howard, Allison Janney, Octavia Spencer, and Emma Stone. Uh, the Help is the story of Emma Stone's character. Uh, her name is Skeeter, and she is an aspiring author slash journalist, um, just graduated from college. She lives in Jackson, Mississippi, um, and this is in, I believe, like the, the early 1960s, 1963, at one point at least. And um, she has an idea to write a story about the help, essentially. The uh, black maids and housekeepers who have essentially raised the children of wealthy Jacksonians um, for years and years and years. um, And to compile all this into a book and release it for public consumption. This being Mississippi in the 1960s, that is a very fraught proposition. And it's not just about her, it's also about the maids themselves and dealing with their own precarious employment situations. And also with... Jessica Chastain's character, who is a, uh, 
was like married into a wealthy Jackson family, but he was considered kind of an outcast from the rest of Jackson High Society and, and kind of sort of like a trashy, I guess. And her, and her attempt to try and sort of like ingratiate herself with broader Jackson society. Uh, Lars, this was your first time seeing this movie. What did you think? It was. I will note we're also watching this movie at a very interesting time in history. Yes. Um, you know, with, with the approach of broken house the death or murder, should we say, of George Floyd mm-hmm. um, and so forth. So you, you have to kind of come at this with a certain lens of white savior. It, it definitely has a white savior vibe. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, I'm not going to fault a movie for that. I don't mm-hmm. think that's justification to say that's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are ways to tell the story a little bit better. Um, I think Emma Stone is really good in this movie. I think the supporting cast is really good in this movie. Um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a ton to say. I, I think the thing that I would say, you know, now 10 years after this come out with just a more nuanced view on race relations in America is it doesn't, um, I, I, yeah. There's racism in how these women are treated in their jobs. It's not addressing why these women have these jobs in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the more like nuanced way that you would make this movie today. Right. It's like the pro- the yeah, overt racism is a problem. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that. Some of these people are very racist. Yeah, you can't go around saying this stuff and doing these things. Um, but like subvert racism, where it's like yeah, African American women can only get jobs as maids and cooks. That's also really bad. Right. And I don't think the movie touches on that nor do i think it they would at the time right right right. um i think there's a way as like a modern filmmaker to do that but i'm not that's not really the point Mm -hmm. that's fine it's just kind of a ultimately feel good story about history (laughs) that was not so good (laughs) right yeah uh kathleen i know you're a big fan of this movie so why why are you oh yeah it's just like it's a feel-good movie and I think, like, this is also a book, as you discussed, as you mentioned, and this is a book that I actually did own and did read this time. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed, like, I remember reading the book, and, like, I am a very picky book reader. Not a lot of things, like, really thrill me, but this was a story that I was, like, so excited about, and, like, I was so excited to see this movie because I watched it, like, the year it came out. Um, and I was just, like, so pumped. And it's just, like, a good, feel-good movie. I think that they, like they're good to their characters. Like, every character... I mean, they're not all, like, nice people, but they're all good characters. Like, even the ones who are kind of more minor, they play... Like, everyone plays, like, a substantive role in, like, building the story, for the most part. Um, I think that they just, like... I think that they know what they're doing. Again, it is, like, watching it now... I, I don't know. Yeah, it was, like, 15, so it was, like, 10 years ago, about nine years ago, when I first saw this, and I didn't connect with the white savior thing then now watching it for sure i see that but i also think that like as a like i don't know the identity of the writer um like what her race is um but i would assume that she's writing from the place that she felt the most comfortable like writing from um and then also i think that for like people who are not necessarily like aware of uh or, like, that, that everyone should probably be aware of racism. But if this is not a story that someone would normally come to, I think it helps to see it from the point of view of somewhere where you 
might have like been on like the other side of if that makes sense like if you relate mm-hmm. more to like skeeter's like place in life then it might be easier to like view it from that lens Anywho, not trying to defend it but it's just a, a thing that i was thinking while watching it um, yeah, I think- but other than that like i don't know i just think it makes me happy it's a ha- movie it's like the one movie that like i would watch like over and over again i would tell someone to watch like Talking about, like, The Descendants as an airplane movie because it's long and you don't really need to pay attention. Like, this is an airplane movie because, like, I know I'm going to enjoy every minute that I'm watching it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, it's a very watchable movie. Um, and I think a lot of the movies we watched for this episode weren't very watchable. Or, like, not, like, readily watchable. Um, and so I think that helps a lot. What's interesting, so the author, Catherine Stockett, actually is, like, she's, like, Skeeter's, like, kind of, she, Skeeter is kind of her, she's much younger than Skeeter, but she, like, grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and was, like, kind of raised in this kind of environment, and so she's sort of, like, injected apparently a lot of herself into the book. Um, she is white. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and had, like, a very close relationship with, like, an African-American domestic worker who, like, worked in a house. Um yeah, I think that, like, yeah, the the white savior thing is, like, a, a pretty uh, obvious criticism, and I think a fair one as well. But I also think it's it's one that's, I think, levied a little um, uncritically at this movie, in the sense that what this movie is, and I, I think there's a problem where, like, Skeeter's definitely the focus of it, mm-hmm. um, and it, it cares a lot about sort of, like, how doing what she's doing impacts her relationship with her mother and her kind of sort of boyfriend and her circle of friends, right? It, 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 a, yeah. a lot of that. And it's about her kind of advancing her career also. And so I think, you know, that there, there are legitimate gripes there. But I do also think this is a movie about, like, a white woman using her privilege and platform to elevate the voices of black women, right? Yeah. It's like, she is doing, like, a, like, she's not just, like, becoming friends with, like, a driver, like, driving Miss Daisy, right? Like, she is actually, like, giving voice to, like, the struggles of these people who are voiceless, especially in Mississippi in the 60s. And I don't think you can discount that when talking about this movie. Like, yeah, maybe it's a little too tidy, but it's, like, a very... um, That's, like, a big thing. And and that's, I, I think, white, like, um, you look at, like, the, the reckoning media has kind of gone through since the George Floyd protests about, like, not enough diversity on writing staffs and things like that. And granted, this is a book, this would have been a book, like, written by a white woman using black women's voices. But, you know, I, I think there's something to be said of, like, like I just said, elevating these people's voices and, like, putting out for the world for public consumption. Because the people it shows reading it, it's black and white, right? The idea is that you are getting this perspective up to... Um, the only way you're really going to get changed is, like, bringing things to the attention of people in power. And I think that's part of what this movie's about. And there's also, I think, an angle of, like... Um, what I think this this movie, like, I think there are ideas in it that are much more complicated than maybe, like, the director is, like, able to wrangle with. Because there's also, I think, the Jessica Chastain uh, storyline, which if you want to say like there was like a superfluous storyline, it would probably be that one. I um, really like that one. You did? Yeah. It, it's good, but I think that is the most, it, it's the most Hollywood in a way, because it ends where it's like she ends up cooking the meal for Octavia Spencer, right? It ends it ends the tidiest, and it's like the least complicated in that regard. Yeah. But it, 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 there, there's this idea where it's like, you know, 
she's like, oh, like these people think they they're mad at me because they think I stole Bryce Dallas Howard's character's boyfriend. And Octavia Spencer's like, no, they don't like you because they think you're white trash. Yeah, it kind of becomes about class, right? Yeah. yeah, and and so there's like it adds that extra layer of, of dynamic and. I think a bit it's just big ideas it's like a big issue and like it made me want sometimes you watch movies and you're like this makes this makes me want like this movie made me want like a generation spanning like novel or miniseries about like a black family and a white family in like mississippi and just like how 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 they interacted and changed like from the civil war to the present day right because that's like jessica chastain's literally living in a, on a plantation <laughs> It's like the it, and it's not lost on people. I don't think that it's like a lot of these African American women. Yeah, they're getting paid for their work, but they're doing work that they probably would have done if they were slaves too. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, that's just a very big idea to handle within like a two and a half hour movie. That's also going for like a general audience and probably some awards. Um, so yeah, it, it's not perfect, and I don't know that it's like the most. Uh, intriguing filmmaking style per se it definitely looks like and feels like an oscar movie but it's it's way smarter than i think a lot of people give it credit for yeah that's fair yeah anything else on the hell no yeah we, we covered that one knocked that one out uh so the help it was nominated uh jessica chastain this is like a very un jessica chastain role too i feel it is it's weird um, yeah <laughs> she's kind of like ditzy yeah yeah well she was nominated for best supporting actress octavia spencer won best supporting actress uh, Viola Davis was nominated for Best Actress, and it was nominated for Best Picture. Move on now to the final film on the docket, Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, written by John Logan, based on the book The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick, starring Asa Butterfield, Ben Kingsley, Sasha Baron Conan, Chloe Grace Moretz, Ray Winstone, Emily Mortimer, and Jude Law. Hugo is the story of a boy named Hugo uh, who lives at a train station in Paris, um, and he, he maintains all the clocks. He's an orphan. Um, he basically like lives within the gears and the clock towers and all of that, um, and is constantly trying to evade both the like station agent or whatever, the, <laughs> the, the cop in the station played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, crap. Our headphone splitter just fell because Lars laughed too hard. Um, and uh, all that. And... Uh, Cody trying to avoid the station agent trying to like ship him off to the orphanage. It's back to the orphanage, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, is trying to find the missing pieces for this automaton that his father found. This basically wind-up man who can do a bunch of things. Um, and he ends up meeting this old man who owns a toy shop in his station and working for him, becoming his apprentice and becoming a friend of his uh, granddaughter. I yes. think this is goddaughter. Goddaughter, something like that. Oh, oh his ward, if you will. Um, and it turns out this guy is George Melier, the great silent film director, uh, and how he's abandoned film. And he doesn't want people finding out about his past, but Hugo tries to find out about his past and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think you have the dissenting opinion, Kathleen, so we'll let you go first. I hate this movie. Like, flat out. Like, I saw this movie in theaters, and I remember watching it and just being like, who is this movie for? Because I sure as hell do not enjoy it. Um, and so, like, going into it again, like, ten years later, I was like, I'm going to forget that I had that opinion and just, like, watch it again. Like, maybe I just didn't get it. Maybe I just didn't like it at the time. And, like, watching it again, it just came back to, like, 
all the feelings I had the first time I watched it of just like <laughs> so excited for it to end because I just did it. It like goes on for so long, and it's it's literally all I can say is that it's like that <clears throat> type of story that I hate, which is just like the childhood whimsy and excitement and like curiosity and like all of that good feely cutesy stuff that like for some reason rubs me and all of the wrong ways. So I really like this movie. I didn't really like it. I liked this movie. And why I think the reason I liked it is that it, I, I guess I feel like it's a little bit more than that. Um, and it's all like the way, just like compare the way that there's like a lot of parallels to extremely loud and incredibly close, obviously, or it's about like a precocious child with a dead father. Um, but just like think about the way that my boy Martin Scorsese like depicts like the loss of Hugo's father with the way that it's done in Extremely Loud Incredibly Close and like Extremely Loud Incredibly Close like that made me want to like jump the way that's depicted like made me want to like jump out a window like that made me want to like too soon Mike <laughs> oh crap you're right like, shit <laughs> <laughs> wow um, it, it made me want to like I said like tear my skin off like it, it it just it felt ex- it felt like it was rubbing your nose in it. Whereas this, the way it just depicts Hugo reminiscing about his father and what he loved about his father and um, his father's like untimely death and just the way it's it's built and woven without ever explicitly having to say Hugo, your father is dead because he died in a fire, or he was saying my father is dead because he died in fire, but just like the way is being able to do that through like cinematic prose. I just think it's so beautiful, and it just I think that's what adds sort of like a degree of like realness to this movie. And his journey to like build this thing just felt more real and authentic. And it's like he wanted like this was him trying to hold on to his father, but he never explicitly had to say that. And when he he he, he kind of like he he also finds the key to make it work, but it's a little disappointing, and he gets upset. It's like you know why. And I so there's that. I also just think it's just like very well made, like. The, like the chase scenes when he's like running away from Sasuke, I think it's like very well done. Just like the idea that how they had to coordinate all these people on train station is really cool. And I also think it makes a better argument for like the majesty of silent film than the artist does. Because mm-hmm. I think it's able to be like, you don't understand. Like this guy literally had to, like George Lee had to hand paint film to do this. He actually, he came as close to like inventing dragons as like anybody in his time did. And I think it just does a better job of like explaining like why that's important and why it's like amazing, which makes you think about like what this movie is doing as far as like coordinating a lot of the bigger set pieces. And the fact, I sort of think it, it, it also admits films limits where it's like the reason George Millier kind of like dropped, stopped making movies is because people came back from world war one and they had already seen so many terrible and outlandish things that like these movies just didn't have an effect on them anymore. And I, that that acknowledging the limitations of movies while also celebrating them and also kind of having this this, this this like nice ending and these other side characters who I think are entertaining um, and like very old Hollywood but just like entertaining and 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 I don't know it's like it, it is a little saccharine maybe but I feel like it's a much more uh, refined version of that I'm really glad that we got to watch this and the artist and extremely loud at the same episode. Mm. That, that was nice. Good timing, Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I am more inclined to agree with Mike's opinion as well. Sorry, Kathleen. 
Um, I it, it's about making it's about making children fall in love with movies, and it's yeah. about making us realize the child in ourselves who love. We all have like these movies that meant a lot to us at very key moments in our young lives, um, and I think it's 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 about that and kind of rediscovering that part of us. Um, and yeah, I, I think the the montages of like uh, Melier like making the movies um, with his girl uh, as like the actress, mm. um, and yeah, like painstakingly coloring him in, and it's, it it definitely like it, it shows, um, and it also tells a lot more than the artist. I, mm. I appreciate the art that the artist was <laughs> quite literally because he couldn't really talk. It it, <laughs> it it just like showed things. Yeah, I think the artist is more emotive and probably better acted. Mm. Um, uh, shorter, uh, but this, yeah, yeah, I, that that sequence is really good. Um, I, I think my biggest problem with this movie is actually how it looks. I, I think it looks very CGI. Yeah, and like Scorsese, what are you doing, man? You make you make real gritty movies, and this <laughs> looks like, like I wish I could put my finger on what this looks like. It looks like just like slightly too fake. It's like if someone yeah. like went into Hogwarts and sprayed it and like like glitter. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of what this looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um it's like very like blue and orange. Yeah. Uh it, it does look kind of fake. I yeah. Um and, and maybe and I think he also tries like he does a little like too much There's like that one dream sequence where it's like Hugo dreams about like the train like falling out of the station and of him being like the mechanical man. Like, yeah, there's a little little too much there. But I do also think, and this kind of goes to your earlier point, Kathleen, I I, had written this down, but I I forgot what it was until now, is that, um, yes, it is sort of like, you know, nice childhood happy ending, yay. But I also think that the reason it's like that is because I think, basically what I think Marjorie is trying to say is that, like, it may be very possible that the only place the happy endings happen are in the movies. Oh, and if God. that's the case, then that's why they're important. That's why they should exist. It's like, I, you know, if it's because, like, we, we have to go off to war and see terrible things. We need something to keep us going. And I think that's the role movies Martin Scorsese thinks that they should, like, play in society. And he, he did literally make this for his daughter. Yeah. Um, he, he wanted to make a movie that... <laughs> oh, that's God. so mean. <laughs> Um, it's like he literally wanted to make a movie that his daughter could see and didn't involve just like tons of like cocaine and like violence. Um, it, I I like that point. Or it's like movies, they're an escape. There's been, there. This is relevant because of the time we're in. Um, you know, it's, everyone's being trapped inside. There's a lot of like racial injustice. There's just people are not happy and things are like very terrible in the world right now. Um, and there was this like New York Times or uh, New Yorker comic like several weeks ago that I saw circulating and it was like <laughs> some government official. It's like, um, yeah. So yeah, all these like arts are doing really well right now. That's why we want to cut their budget. Right, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. no, you need this more than ever. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I, I like that. That's kind of what this is for. Mm-hmm. But that's like a dark, well, I'm just saying it's a dark thought that like, this is the only place you can have a happy ending, but maybe I could see how Scorsese would think that way. Yeah. But, like, that's, my argument is not, like, the, ooh, childish happy ending kind of thing, because, like, that's the reason that I like movies is because, like, I deal with a lot of mental illness and stuff like that, and it's just, like, this is the only place that I, like, find relief. 
it's like so it's not the happy ending thing i like agree i feel like scorsese and i are kind of on the same page with that it's Mm. just the like the characters are awful to me just the like their excitement and their exploration and they're like everything's wonder and like there is something about that like across the board not just this movie like across the board that like i find so grating and i don't know why and I'll never be able to defend it because I don't know why. But it just is so. Maybe it's not like kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, Kathleen, I actually straight up agree with you on this point. I think the best, like, person in this movie is Ben Kingsley. I like, <laughs> or no, sorry. Well, yeah, kind of. Uh, like, the character I resonate the most with is definitely Sasha Baron Cohen. It's like, you know, back to the orphanage. It's like, get out, get out of here, you kids. Uh, this is an orderly place. Um, I... I agree. I actually don't root for, like, any of the characters. And when they're talking, I get really... Not annoyed. I just, like, don't find it interesting. Um, So I will agree with you there. And I think the artist is better acted. (laughs) I said that already. There's not, like, I'm I'm not... You know what I mean? I don't feel, like, particularly attached to Hugo and his young concubine. That was the wrong (laughs) word. And his young friend... Wow. And his old concubine, Ben Kingsley. I don't know. I don't... Comrade. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. I don't find... <laughs> oh, my God. Like, reading the good earth or something? Yeah. Going I don't... I don't... Like, that's all fine. It's not about them for me. It's about the story of movies. Right. Um, and I hope Sasha Baron Cohen does find children to send to the orphanage. <laughs> that would make him happy. I do like how the this year the Academy was literally just, like... Or we're going to have, like, a movie that's literally just, like, a silent movie and about how great silent movies are. And we're going to have a movie where, like, kids literally go to a library to read a book about movies. <laughs> and then the guy who reads it comes by and is like, oh, I see you're reading my book about movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty heavy-handed. And also, like, it may, I just also like how, like, Martin Scorsese is, like, li- a film preservationist. And this is literally, like, his pitch to, like, his daughter to, like, sure, wouldn't it be so cool if you became a film preservationist, too? Like, uh, <laughs> I, uh... I think that's funny. I, I, I like, I feel like Martin Scorsese is like a guy who like, I like it when people seem like they're obsessed with something and that becomes a movie. And I feel like that's like the Hugo and the Aviator. I feel like, or like Scorsese's two like big like obsession movies to me. Um, hmm. It is, you and I watched Casino like mm-hmm. around when we watched this. So this is an interesting move for, for uh, Scorsese. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> Hugo. Very different. Very different. Um, but it got him a Golden Globe for Best Director. Fun fact. Uh, we're good on Hugo? Yeah. Cool. Well, it won visual effects. It was nominated for editing and costume design. It was nominated for cinematography. Uh, or no, rather, won for cinematography and art direction and sound mixing and sound editing. Nominated for original score and adapted screenplay and director Martin Scorsese and Best Picture. The score's good. Yes, I agree. I really like the score, too. Um, okay. That does it for this episode of the Real Life Oscar Challenge. Of course, we haven't watched all the movies from 2011 yet, um, namely Moneyball, Midnight in Paris, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. We'll talk about them in our next episode. But these these top five, let's do, well, first five, rather, let's do what we did for our other part one episodes. Well, who's the leader in the clubhouse for us all? Who is the one that we can't say they're a definitive winner yet, but who do we have, who do we have our eye on right now? I'll start with you, Lars. Uh, the artist. I that's an easy easy pick. It's the only one I gave more than four stars. Kathleen? Hands down the help. I think you go with Hugo. Uh, uh. Maybe that's my unconscious Martin Scorsese bias, but who knows. Um, 
Thanks so much for listening uh, to the Real Life Oscar Challenge. You can follow us on iTunes, uh, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Um, you can find our writing on the Post Rider. We also post these podcasts there. Um, I'm Mike Levito. You can find me on Twitter at mlevito and Letterboxd at Ameramike. I'm Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. And I'm Kathleen Levito, and I'm constantly not on the internet anywhere. All right. There we go. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much for listening and uh, movies about movies and movies about kids there's a lot of them and they get on my best picture maybe there's a lesson in that I don't know I didn't have an ending for this thanks for listening stay safe everybody